0: Here to welcome you to the Brew Time podcast, this is a podcast all about doing content differently. Today in the show, I am joined by Lyndon Campbell, who's the head of Sync at Domino Records. Now, I'm so excited to have um, Lyndon on the show because she has, during lockdown, created ethical tagging. Now. If you're a brand listening to this podcast or you work in marketing at a brand, Lyndon gives out lots of good information, amazing information actually, on how brands can create briefs that um, people in publishing like her can use to match you with the perfect music for your content, be that YouTube videos, social media content, or even video that goes on TV or filmmakers even. So it's really interesting from that side of view for, for any brands listening. But if you are a small business or a content creator, I urge you to keep listening to this show because what Lyndon has developed is really applicable to all of us who put anything out there on the internet. What she talks about if we can apply this across industries, across everything we do, we put out online, I think we're going to open the world up and make a huge difference. This episode is really about the way in which we use language and language when it comes to search. And it's also about our unconscious bias and how we change that and have little behavioural nudges towards Creating the internet to be a more open and accessible place. Which is a very long intro for a brew time podcast episode, but I'm in. I, Lyndon's really passionate about this, and I can really see ways that this can, that we can apply this to all content that we put online with so ethical tagging that we can put online. So Lyndon will be way better at explaining all of this than I am. So let's get into the episode. Um, yeah, I was just wondering what led you to start ethical tagging and obviously people aren't going to be aware of it yet so if you could just in your own words say what ethical tagging is.
1: Um, so I've worked in um, playlisting and music search since 2000 and well 2003 is when I started doing music licensing and so the lang we are at the mercy of the language that our clients deliver to us so they'll come to us with certain keywords asking for music that fits particular criteria and then we su- make the suggestions based on those words um, and those suggestions can be the difference of us including or excluding an artist um, and that's for use in mostly advertising, um, TV shows, games, that sort of thing. Um, I have found it really stressful to feel confident that I'm delivering the music that the client needs and and fulfil the expectation of our artists. And I think in the last five or six years, I started to feel like there was an issue around clients trusting us and the search words that they were using were becoming quite vague so it was making it harder for us to recommend niche artists and most of our catalogue is quite niche so I felt like we were excluding a lot of potential opportunities for bands and the ethics of that Became really apparent to me in 2016 when I was invited to do some research in Germany around the music tags that people use in branded content to search for music. And the positivity bias that um, I could see in the sort of resulting uh, research documents just it really shocked me. So before going into anything as serious as racism or issues around gender or or culture just the positivity bias alone was quite astounding and I just felt like the ethics of that and the exclusion of certain songs and the limitation that that words deliver um I just find that quite serious and I think it needs serious ethical application like the moral issues around that The exclude excluding music and potentially excluding cultural sets because of those words that you use um, is quite serious, and I think there's a lot of kind of laziness around it. So, put simply, ethical tagging is the ability to search for relevant music, and it's about using precise words. That get you an accurate result, and that's before you even go into the moral issues of making it a fair search. It's just about making your
0: searches for music relevant and appropriate. So there you go. <laughs> Which makes sense because if you apply that to if you're searching for visual elements, those search terms are still what we put into. Um, say an image library it's still very limited in what we're shown and I was thinking about this when I was looking through my Spotify I'm like I have to genuinely go out of my way to listen to something new and challenging because otherwise it will show me things related to the stuff I've listened to or more variants of what I've been listening to. And even when you've got the the new music coming, like you, you, new recommendations each week, it's still based on what you, So it creates like this little echo chamber.
1: Exactly. And I think the thing that's important is to recognise the echo chamber. I think it's absolutely fine if you're happy in your echo chamber, but I think you've got to be aware that you are in an echo chamber. And I think my concern is that... Um, the serendipity of walking into a record shop and spotting something that you've never seen before could potentially be lost online. But equally you would go into a record shop knowing, oh, this record shop specializes in dance music or this record shop specializes in um, reggae or music from the African continent. And so, you know, you've all, it's almost like in the old days, I think the best analogy for me is in the old days you would you'd read a physical newspaper and you would know the politics of that newspaper. So you would choose to buy the sun, you would choose to buy the times or the independent, and you would have some subtle sense of the politics of that newspaper. And that all of the information that's in that newspaper has been filtered through a set of values, a set of ideology, a set of politics. So at least, you know, you are informed, you are aware to some extent, of the bias of that newspaper. And I think my concern with um, sync search tools and platforms like Spotify, I absolutely love Spotify. I mean, I'm, I use it all the time. It's fantastic. Um, but how aware are we of that echo chamber as you As you mentioned, it's it's kind of like, it's time for us to just just sort of step back a bit and just be a bit more aware of Of those of the algorithms that are functioning, and are they delivering that serendipity that I think is really important? Um, maybe they are, but I think we need to be aware, I think we need to be conscious and we need to make conscious, informed choices. And what concerns me is when informed choice is not available to people. Um, I I would assume the majority of people couldn't give monkeys. They're not interested. They're passive listeners. But I think there will always be a community of people who want choice and who want to make decisions about the communities that they access and they want to know the ethics behind that. Um, And I think most of the developers that I've spoken to haven't been defensive about that. They've all been really supportive of it. And, and what's really exciting is that there is a dialogue of, oh, yeah, no, you might be onto something. So what can we do to help with that? And that's actually quite a difficult question to answer um, because I don't know, <laughs> which is why I want to have this
0: discussion. So, yeah. But that's good that the developer, because that was one of the things that was going through my head. Do the people who create the tech for search to happen are they even aware of it or is it their unconscious bias
1: so I think I mean I'm probably being over optimistic I don't think there are sets of white men sat around trying to exclude people I think what, what tends to happen is that they set out to solve a problem that they've experienced in their own universe their own community and then when it gets to a certain level, they make that public and they share that tool with other people and those people adopt it or not. Um and so there's certain there's certain words or there's certain genres that perhaps those people feel more comfortable operating in. So there's a book by Dr. Julia Jones called The Music Diet, and she actually flags in that book how a lot of music research um is within jazz and orchestral sort of classical jazz um, genres because most of the scientists that work in that area they that's the music they like so it's very unlikely that you'll have a research paper that's based on you know hardcore metal or um sort of other countercultures because that's just not the music that they listen to and I think you know I don't think there's like a, a malicious intention behind that I think it's just natural for people to sort of Um, pull resources from their own world order and and, you know I'm probably you know I I, I am sort of empathetic to that but then also I represent artists from a cross-section of different countercultures and I believe it's unacceptable to not consider the world of music rather than just you know developing tools out of your own bubble so I think when something becomes global and something is as big and as powerful as Pandora or Spotify using Echo Nest technology I think you need to there needs to be an auditing process to make sure that the personalized music selections you know would satisfy somebody you know in Bombay just as much as it would satisfy somebody in Liverpool. You know, I I think my example on a day to day level is I'm asked to supply recognisable music for European car ads. And they'll say we want something classic. We want something hip. We want it to be recognisable. And, you know, I think about I don't even know my neighbours that well. I couldn't tell you what they like. I couldn't tell you what was recognisable to them. So then, scale that up to Europe. What you know? How do you find a song that's recognisable in Europe? And I think what happens is you just end up f- focusing down onto a really narrow range of music. And what's really exciting is is you know the conversations that I've had in the last few years with developers, and I've talked to there's platforms that are very popular. I think Disco is a very popular platform at the moment for sync. And they are absolutely happy to have a discussion. They're absolutely happy to communicate with me about this. And there isn't any defensiveness. And I think that's really cool. I'm really excited about that because everything I learn, I can communicate that back to the developers and they are taking it on board. Um, so we use a platform called SongSpace and I've shared my sort of everything that I've learned about tagging with them and they are taking it seriously. So I think that's really hopeful. I think that's kind of exciting. But I think what we have to do is deliver back a solution or deliver back some criteria that we feel are missing. I I don't think it's enough to just sort of whinge about it. So for me, it's really important to get people thinking about, you know, if you use the phrase world music because it's easier, well, it might be easier for you to say world music, but it's not easier for the recipient who's supplying that music to know what that means because there's no context. So do you mean music from Nepal? Do you mean music from um Uzbekistan? Do you mean music from um Benin or Nigeria? It's like, it's insane. And you know, you would never say, oh yeah, send me your most recognizable um British music. Cause you'd immediately be like, well what genre? What era? Um who's the audience? What, you know, what do you mean? um so why would you say that why would you say world music it's absurd um so it's been quite weird it's been quite a weird six months because I started talking about this a bit more publicly and the number of people who were like god I never thought about this before and I found that quite worrying (laughs) like how do how have other people been able to respond to these briefs they've sort of it's just it's 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 been I think everyone's sort of in a everyone's got to process this because I think we're all going oh yeah it doesn't make sense to call something recognizable so what should we call it um and I think it's going to take quite a while to unfurl this um and another thing that we're really conscious of is that a lot of indie bands particularly don't like to be pigeonholed so they don't like to be classified as like Seattle rock for example because there might be some of their music that isn't doesn't fit into that mold and so really it's about finding enriched criteria so you know this artist is associated with a particular um maybe a particular book or a particular director or You know, there might be a venue that they're heavily associated with or a radio station that that, and that all of these sort of enriched details around their life actually make it more accurate, make the audience that that music sits within a bit more accurate. Because, you know, it's a lot easier if you say a venue, a music venue, you already have like a really strong sense of the ethos of that venue and the ideology and the community around that venue. Um, whereas, you know, generalizing and saying Seattle rock might not be, you might it might be still a bit vague, but, you know, you could say like a particular radio station, a particular venue, you know, a particular brand of clothing that the band wears, or, you know, even something like a haircut and they're like, oh, they have that kind of hair or they wear those sorts of shoes. All right. I get them. That's this counterculture or that's this audience and you can play with that. Um, and so there's I think there's quite a lot that you can actually do to contextualize music um, without using sets of values that we've been using for years is you know even just as simple as a genre like rock. I mean it's it's very hard to know what that means, but you can contextualize that very easily with just a few reference cultural reference points.
0: It it feels a lot like it's partly a behavioural change thing of getting the people who are giving you, getting the brands and the content creators who are giving you the briefs to be more thoughtful within those briefs. And it also feels a bit, it sounds a bit like when you're doing marketing and you've got to create your customer avatar and when you're going really deep into it and you're going, oh, they shop at these shops and they do... um, they do X, Y, and Zs, and they're this, old, they're, they're this old and they drive this type of car. It's like you need all of all that information in the brief. And that, yeah, that the content creators need to be a bit more proactive in this of what they're trying to achieve at the end, um, which you've talked about in your AIM talk. You've saying brands aren't providing enough context for the briefs. So what do you think brands can do better And how do we? How do you make it easier for them to do it better?
1: Yeah. So, genuinely, I'm genuinely serious about trying to figure out some simple tools that we can deliver back to them. So, for for example, we've put together a list of ten criteria for defining what recognisable is, and we're going to keep working on that. So it's just like, um, you know, are they? a super superstar so that might be you know and then put some like reference points like David Bowie or Elton John and that sort of thing and then you go all the way down to is it simply the musicology of a song that's recognizable so that might be that it fits within a really strong um, genre like um, a particular techno pattern beat pattern or something and you can define those things and you can put you can put those together so We're working on that now, like creating some key reference points so that at least, you know, someone who doesn't know music and isn't able to articulate music could just whiz down these 10 points and and click on the references and go, oh, yeah, that's what I mean. I mean something like that. And you'd be like, oh, right. So that's that's um, point four, which might be. explaining the band's reach that they have a particular radio station like they have their music on particular radio stations they've had um spot plays or they might have had tours in like um 10 000 capacity venues or whatever you know there's like different criteria but generally we've been trying to roll this out and people have been really struggling with it so i think we're gonna have to like go back to the drawing board a little bit on that i think I think ultimately, when you're given the briefs which we get, which are literally, there's no visual, there's not even the brand name, you're literally asked, can you send me something that is cool, recognisable, um, and appeals to all generations. It's so broad. And I think actually, I think when we start to really have this dialogue with brand marketeers, I think they're going to have to come clean about the biases that they have around the audiences that they're aiming for. And they just need to be more honest about who it is that they are targeting, because, like, I don't think the music brief should be we want to achieve X audience, which is basically what they're saying. They're like, we just want a song everyone loves. I think they need to seriously understand the impact that music has. And I think the only way we can do that is to provide back some case studies. So what I mean by that is um, my favourite advert on at the moment is the AA commercial with Tucker the dog. And as soon as it comes on, I just want to text all my friends and go, yeah, it's on telly, because it's just like the most beautiful song it's just it's just a universal it's just got a universal appeal and when it first went on air last year I think it was lockdown one maybe and we were all feeling a bit trapped and we couldn't go out and this little dog's in its living room putting on some tunes and like it's got the the wind blowing in its hair and it was exactly nailed a sort of that feeling of like wanting to get out get back back on your feet and the branding was just so clear it was just you know the the coloring of the ad was yellow it was quite obviously aa the emotional impact was really strong it sort of really had that empathy and the music whilst the music was important it wasn't distracting because it wasn't something that everyone had heard before and And so it's not jarring. So every time the advert comes on, it's sort of appealing. You keep it on and you watch it and you have a little boogie along to it. And, um, you know, it'd be really interesting to understand the case study around that, like how many people Googled the song. And in doing that, that creates a dialogue with the online marketing of the AA brand. Another example is um, a number of years ago, we did a car advert with Trailer Trash Tracy's and um, it was a song called You Wish You Were Red and it's actually a socio-political song but I think in the context of the advert it, it was like a red car so it was completely taken out of context but the song drove people to the client's website because people wanted to know what the song was. They wanted to know, what is this song? It's great. We want to know what it is. And that drove traffic to the website. And the client told me that they'd offered petrol and they'd offered free petrol in a previous campaign. And the curiosity around our song had driven more people to their website than the offer of free petrol. (laughs) And that is the power of music. And that is why I think brands need to really understand why is it that they're putting a song in? Is it telling the story? Is it driving curiosity? And I think there's so much pressure and stress to get audience reach that I would suggest that I don't think that the music should necessarily, in every situation, embody the brand values of a general brand values of a brand. I think actually the music should be helping to deliver the message of that individual film, um, in order to either drive customers to your web channels or you know, or just to keep people watching the advert because it's very easy to ignore an advert, and so quite often the music will keep people on an advert or it will actually put people off. And the other thing, other problem with using evergreens and recognisable music is it can sometimes overshadow the message of the advert. And So in terms of contextualising the music use, I think brand marketeers need to think seriously about what is just in the same way that they decide their cast, the location, the script, the story that they're telling. What is it that they need the music to achieve for them? Is it telling the story? Is it driving curiosity? Is it um, making a statement? You know, how important are the lyrics to conveying your brand message? Um, And right now, we're not getting any of that. As a supplier, we're we're just not involved in that conversation because um, they don't trust us to tell us. Um, And there's such a chain of communication that those contextual notes aren't getting as far as us. And so if we're getting generalised terms like recognisable and hip and cool, we're we're not seeing all of those mood boards and all of that time they've spent trying to figure out what it is they want to achieve in this campaign. We're not seeing any of that. And so I don't understand how we could ever pitch back something that's suitably relevant um and I think without that context we lose our opportunities for juxtaposition or offering music from um an unexpected location that perhaps you know you might not have heard the song before but there's a universal quality to either the musicology or the lyrics that appeals to everyone no matter what their background is And I think it's wrong to assume that everyone only wants to see music or culture from their own background. I think actually humans are a lot more uh, interested in diversity than anyone appreciates. And I don't think you need to labour the point. I think you can use music from all sorts of different locations Um, because so much music has universal qualities. So I think it's about being able to hone in on what those universal qualities are, be they lyrics or musicology, and then teach the brand community how how they can access that, whether that's through search terms or key references and just being able to give them time to digest the possibilities of using music because it's just like everyone's an expert in music everyone's got their own opinion and it's very it's it's very difficult i think sometimes for people to step back and be objective about the use of music um because it can get so
0: personal <laughs> um yeah sorry i've gone on a bit there haven't we no you've answered about three questions in that as well <laughs> but it's really i one i find it surprising that because knowing from like the marketing side how much goes into understanding what you want to achieve out of a piece of content that that's not getting through to you and that you you've got to that when music really works well with an advert or a film it's really noticeable even by it's not being noticed, it can be noticeable. Mm. So it's, ju- it's just surprising that it's, it's not working the way it should be. And that the way you describe it, it's like, oh, we need some music on this. We want it to be recognizable. It's a bit of an afterthought. But actually, your case studies show that music can be the driving force that gets the sales because people are curious, people want to hear songs they want to hear the music and people don't always want to hear the same thing like okay. the way I see it is if imagine if that Fleetwood Mac song was used on an advert that's not MS. it it would jar with you wouldn't it you'd be like oh they're using the MS song on this that, that that's just stealing so it's, it's and what you do is a real skill as well I'm just sitting in awe of like
1: well I think the, the thing is there are a huge amount of people that work in brand branded content who are very passionate about music. And their opinions only go so far because at the end of the day they've got to convince their client and their client holds the the you know the purse strings. And so I think the music industry has got a responsibility to collect case studies that prove where music um that pr- prove the offering of music and and uphold the value of music as if it is another cast member because I think when I started doing sync my boss at the time she must have said to me like this is music think of music as being like another member of the cast that's how important it is think of music as being the location because music can save you a lot of money and this is the thing that frustrates me when people make us feel like our music is expensive you know you're coming to us and asking us to take a song out of the context in which it was wrote, written and put it onto your, your film, which is selling your product. It's not selling my my song. It's not intended to sell my song. It's intended to sell your product and give deliver your messaging. And so there's a lot of moral rights in that. And we have to make sure that we're making very serious decisions because the impact that could have on an artist the backlash that could have, the the cultural significance of that. So, you know, there are bands that don't want to become an M&S theme and that's their choice. And it's about choice, informed choice all the way. Um, and I think what we need to do is actually get to the clients, the ultimate purse string holders with a set of um, really strong case studies. I mean, I think one of my favourite adverts is the and Gorilla for Cadbury's um, and that was, uh, I think, 2008, 2009. And I was working at EMI Records at the time, and the advert came in. They already knew they wanted Phil Collins. And we asked them if we could see the film to show to our marketing team to make a decision. And I remember sitting in the boardroom in EMI Brook Green with. Like everyone just went silent because we we're all like, "What the hell is this? It was just so odd. And we didn't really, we didn't really know what to do about it. And we were like, "Well, I mean, it's a gorilla playing the drums. I mean, uh, okay, like I don't think anyone realized that people would still be talking about that now, and it's you know it gets referenced in um, books about music use in adverts all the time. And actually when you start to sort of drill down to what was the process behind that, I mean, I think there was probably a little bit of childish humour that like, wouldn't it be funny if everyone thought the gorilla was actually Phil Collins or, you know, like just the, the human joyful quality of it. And that was really what um, Cadbury's were trying to achieve. They wanted something that would just stop people in their tracks And make them laugh. And then the most shocking thing was that about a year later or six months after it went on air, they actually changed the song and it completely shattered the illusion. I don't know. I don't think anyone was thinking, oh, that's Phil in a suit. I think think they were. I I just think it was (laughs) like they completely I think they put Bonnie Tyler on it or something. And it was like, why would you do that? and i don't understand what broke down i don't i've never understood that i don't understand why they didn't compete i don't know why they haven't shown the ad again actually because it's such a strong ad but um you know i don't know i don't remember that being briefed out i think that was genuinely a creative team enjoying their job and making the most of delivering what they know would be impactful and that and that's like a really strong case study I believe for trusting the creatives that work in an ad agency to know what's going to like resonate with people um and no way would anyone have gone oh yeah uh, a a and gorilla playing Phil Collins is going to appeal to a mass of people I mean like it's just I can't even imagine that conversation happening. I think it would just just been like, this is really funny. Let's just do it. Um, And I think that sort of over-consciousness of music can be really irritating sometimes. I think, you know, that natural gut instinct of like, this would be really funny if we did this, is really important. And I think think a lot of brands, uh, sorry, ad agencies are sort of being undermined. And they're finding it very difficult to deliver those sorts of proposals to their clients because their clients are wanting to see um, a science behind it. They want a, they want to see value. They want you know they want their they want a return on their money. And it, you know I don't know how many brands would cope with hey, we're going to do a 90-minute a drum solo with a man in a, a monkey suit. I mean, it's just genius. Um, not sure where I'm going with that. That's really
0: distracted me thinking about the drumming <laughs> But um, it, you, it tells us that um, people need to trust in their creative teams. Yeah. And that brands need to trust in the people who are doing the work, whether it's in-house or they're outsourcing it to an And the ad agency, and because I had a question on here about like, do you think there needs to be more understanding of the value of working with someone like you to find the right music of using your skills? Is that value being lost along the way? But I think it's like you said, it's a trust issue. The trust is being lost.
1: I I've I've I mean I I did a conference a couple of years ago with AIM about the future of sync and I said in that right I think I finished the conference with um with the issue of trust and it's something that a lot of commentators have discussed like the internet has opened up it's like a really weird paradox where if something's on a website you believe it but if someone's been doing a job for 20 years unless they've put that on a website you kind of don't believe them um and, and we had that where we we um we were working on rebuilding our website and it was taking forever and it was very stressful but we got there in the end and I genuinely felt like I couldn't really go and have any client meetings until I'd finished that website because they wouldn't believe they wouldn't believe that I am who I say I am they wouldn't believe my roster or what I look at or the different uh projects we've worked on until it was on a website and now it's on a website everyone's sort of more engaged with us they sort of believe that we are who we are um and it's very frustrating because I think I do genuinely feel like a lot of um brands uh ad agencies don't trust the music industry they don't trust people like me they see us as gate holders they don't gatekeepers they don't they don't think we're trying to give them any value. I don't think they realize actually what we're doing is, has cultural impact. We are, um, we are trying to get them to look at music that they wouldn't have otherwise thought of. You know, there's lots of different aspects to this and I could talk about it for weeks, but you know, a lot of what I do is trying to point people to, Things that they might not have considered. And so, yes, we have briefs and we respond directly to those, but in between the briefs, we're trying to get people to start looking at music that they wouldn't have thought about and maybe come back to that in the future. Um, and, you know, we want to get synced. So, it's not in our interests to mislead anyone. And we've also got to protect the integrity of our artists. So, the artists need to make sure that they feel they're being valued. And you know that has a huge skill set, and it's not appreciated. And the skill set of of decent music supervisors who are articulate and know understand how music can benefit a brand, I don't think they're appreciated either. So you know you wouldn't cast. I think it's very rare that you would cast a film without a uh, experienced casting director. So I find it really strange that you would select music without an experienced music supervisor or a network of um, experienced uh, rights holders. And all of the rights holders now have people like me um, who may be better than me, to be fair, but they, everyone now has somebody who knows and understands this end of the business. So there's, it's almost like if if you look at it, actually brand content creators should feel like they've never been in a better position because there's never been so many articulate uh well-experienced uh rights holders there's never been so many music supervisors that know what they're doing and actually um they will get they will deliver value and they will make sure that you know that there's there's a lot that you can do with music beyond just Putting it in the background of an advert. There's all sorts of different things that you can do to amplify a project, and you know we're here and ready and willing to have those discussions. But sometimes I feel like, you know, it's not within the structure of their business. They don't sort of value it as much as maybe the location scout or the casting
0: director. And I find that very strange. Always found that really strange. I I do too, and. It's just going back to what you'd said in that report. Is that these mu- you found the music descriptions are basically reduced down to 22 words? So you're doing all that work within essentially 22 words, which is just it's bonkers. I think I put on my um, questions. Imagine if Instagram only had 22 hashtags. One, how would your content ever be seen in such? an overloaded marketplace and two how does that even describe how you'd want to find things or look for things so I think how do you harness those 22 words to get the right music scene in the right place at the right time
1: so I I think it's difficult with research projects because there's so many you've got to kind of really read into who did they ask and you know what was what was the sample set that they used and everything like that. But to be honest, what I take away from that is that we've always known that there was a positivity bias and that brands just want happy, joyful. They want the value of their brand to be communicated in the music. So they want it to be reliable and serious. And you're kind of like, that doesn't make any sense. That doesn't apply. That's not how I describe music. So you will sometimes get briefs where they're like, (laughs) Um, It might be a bank advert and they want um, intellectual dance music. They don't want it to be frivolous or silly. It's almost like they're trying to say, we want to be taken seriously, but we want to be down with the kids. And um, it's quite funny because you're kind of like, well, actually, I get that. But this is the problem. When you're doing a 30 second, 10 second advert, you're trying to tell a particular message of that actual film. And so the values of your brand, I mean, it makes sense if you're putting together a playlist for, you, for the lobby of your reception area in a bank, that yes, you might want that music to reflect your brand values. But for the purposes of a 10, 20, 30 second, 60 second advert, you know, you've only got a short space of time and a voiceover and you're expecting the music to deliver your positivity bias, it doesn't make sense. What actually you should be doing is the music should be either um, delivering juxtapositions that drive curiosity, or it should be helping convey the message of that particular spot. And I think the 22 words, that for me, sort of highlighted the problem, the lack of understanding about why are you using music in your advert so if you just put the advert out there with no music on it imagine that and the impact of that advert without that music so then try different types of music and is that am, ab, that impact better or worse so a bit like going to the opticians but with music you know is this better or worse and I think people should take more risks to test that out a bit more because we've gone from a 90 second format and i am just talking about adverts 90 second format down to 5 or 10 seconds on instagram and people really need to pay serious attention to how the music can hold somebody or draw their attention or keep them or channel curiosity and i just feel like if you're limiting yourself to these 22 words um you're going to end up creating the same old, same old. And I don't know how you stand out from the crowd. Um, Maybe you don't want to stand out from the crowd, but I would have thought most brands would want to stand out from the crowd, but not in a silly way. Like you can do it very subtly. And that's why I think the, that's why I keep saying the AA advert is just so awesome because, you know, it just really holds your attention. It's pleasant. It's entertaining,
0: but the message is really strong. Hmm. Yes. What is the best advert or project that you've worked on? Oh, oh! Sorry, this wasn't a pre warned question. I was just curious.
1: Um, this is probably I don't know. The the first thing that came into my mind is um, like the sanctity of certain songs that you just like hear a song in your roster and you kind of it gets inside your heart. And you build a little cage around the song in your heart and you're like, oh, my God, this song is so beautiful. I really need this song to be heard by people. Um, So a few years ago, we acquired the catalogue of Molly Drake, Nick Drake's mum. And I don't know, there's sort of like a chill goes down my spine sometimes with the roster. And you're like, this is so precious. I just really need to find people that will appreciate this and so when we were having meetings with certain supervisors um i'm happy to name names so one of them was too young um another one schmooze we just like the certain supervisors you know just won't get it but there's some where you're like i cannot wait to make sure that this music supervisor knows this roster um and so too young uh listened to happiness and little weaver bird um love isn't a right and they put they put it straight onto a film called Anchor and Hope um which is a really nice film uh came out in 2017 and then it just made it really easy to talk to people about the music so we were like you know i just love her songs and uh we shared it with a couple of music supervisors and then um, then there was like an edf advert and a proximus advert so so it's a bit generalized but it's kind of like when you when you take someone like that who's not a household name and you just have like really joyful conversations with supervisors where you're like i just love this song you've got to listen to it um happiness is the most beautiful song it's it says happiness um is like a bird and basically you can't you can't it will come to you but you can't catch it basically you know the lyrics are just tremendous um so that got onto an edf commercial in france and i guess creatively it wasn't the most astounding memorable thing anyone will ever talk about but on a personal level i felt really proud because for me it's like vashti bunyan on the t-mobile advert um 20 years ago or whenever that came out like when you take something as precious as that and then you're able to place it into the general public and they're not even aware of what you're doing but you know it then starts to percolate and and I, that for me is what it's about it's about being able to give people access to music through branded content that they would never ever have crossed their minds to ever listen no one would have ever gone oh, I'm going to go and listen to the music the 1950s music of an old lady they just wouldn't and so for me those are like the really precious jobs I, I feel really proud that someone might find that song and it might give them comfort and I've got a brand to help me do that and it's not about promotion for me it's just about um letting those songs find new homes sorry it's a bit much but
0: um no it's not it's not at all cause... no one is
1: ever going to give me an award for that advert <laughs> they won't because it's just not you know it's not it's not attention grabbing but I will to my dying day be really proud of being able to look after that catalogue and then being able to
0: help it find homes Is just like oh it's the best feeling it's the best feeling See, this, this to me is that that's the key. That's the magic bit. It's where you're passionate. And I've always said that because when I used to do my old job as a label manager, I, the stuff that I phoned people up about and was so excited and passionate about, that sold way more physical copies than the stuff that you just stuck in an email because you got the other person on the end of the phone really excited about it and then they got the buyers from the shops in their countries really excited about it and it's like it spreads so being really enthusiastic and passionate and proud of an of getting music out there that the, the country wouldn't have heard of before that people wouldn't have experienced I think that's I think you should get a plumbing medal for that
1: <laughs> well I think it's about listening I mean that's kind of um hilarious i've got um this is a bit strange This probably won't come across very well on a podcast but i've got a massive um model ear um and i've got i'm just holding up a model ear with uh, a scientific model of an ear and this is sort of like just reminds me how important it is to listen um so i i I have got legal qualifications. I did my legal practice course. One of the um, course elements in the LPC was to have a client session. So you learn someone comes in, they've got a problem, you've got to solve that problem. And the really important thing is to listen. And it starts with the music. You've got to listen to the music. Your own personal taste, your own personal view of the world is absolutely irrelevant. You're listening to you first of all, you start with the music, make sure you listen to the music. It's absolutely um, disgusting how many people in the music business don't actually listen to their own music. They just pump out press releases, they pump out like hyperlinks, but I promise you they probably haven't actually listened to the music. And I'm guilty of that sometimes. There's just too much and I can't listen to everything, but I can tell you, I at least give it at least two or three spins. And goes in my head. And then when my clients are talking to me, I am listening to all of the cues that they're delivering, like all of the contextual references that they're giving me. And it's a very human process. And I have got to be listening and processing so that I can provide them with the solution that I, based on my experience, feel is the best solution for them with the with the songs that I have. And sometimes I will not get enough information. And so it's really hard for me to help. And so it's just like with anything, if someone's asking you for help and so you say to them, how can I help you? What is the problem? And they can't deliver that answer. You're always going to be struggling. And so I think effectively the searchability of music for sync comes down to that. Is that person articulating what it is they need help with? And if they're not articulating that, it's incredibly hard to help them. Um, but it all starts with the music. As far, I mean, no one will be able to convince me otherwise. It starts with the music. Music is fundamental and it's really precious. And anyone that tries to make music into a science or, you know, there's so much AI technology around it. Yeah, I, I don't dispute that you can make great music using technology. But I tell you, when you listen to someone like Molly Drake, that I really struggle to believe that a computer could achieve that. And you've got to really listen to those songs to find good homes for them. So, yeah, it's all about listening.
0: I totally had the AI debate with my husband a few weeks ago because he, he was, like, playing devil's advocate about it. And I'm like, yeah, do you know what? AI might be able to create amazing music, but what it doesn't do is create amazing music because it's compelled to it's because it's programmed to and as humans we have to create things there's certain people out there that do it because it would hurt not to do it and that to me is the difference in the quality of the music and the depth of music you get from someone who really loves what they do and does it regardless of whether it pays money or so i'm starting to sound like one of those banjo interview i do it because i love it and if anyone listens to it that's a bonus but i, I genuinely think that the whole like music ai music it can't compete with human created music
1: i just think it's like it's it's go, goes back to choice everyone should be able to make their own choices about how they participate with music it shouldn't be decided for them i mean i don't know what it is i have. I seem to attract people who love to tell me how much music isn't important to them. They don't really like music. I tell you, they'll be the first on the karaoke with me. I will like, I'll put a song on when they do that to me. I'm like, right. Okay. Let's see. Let's see if you're right. And there's one guy who said that to me and I managed to get him down to a pub and I had him singing along to a piano in a pub, um, like, you know, sort of old knees up mother Brown type songs and I was like, well, that's music. I thought you said you didn't like music, you don't like singing and you don't like you know it's ridiculous it's it's such a brilliant quality. it's a fundamental quality of being a human um, and I just just I just find it really hard to I find it very hard to understand anyone who doesn't appreciate that. and I think with branded content specifically. It's not just because you've got library music, but it. But most creatives don't really enjoy using library music because what they're trying to do is buy into the credibility, the authenticity, the backstory, the community, the relationships around music. So, you know, if I played you the Molly Drake song without any backstory, you'd probably be like, oh, it's an old lady singing a song. When I say, oh, it's Nick Drake's mum, you suddenly are like, oh, my God, now I can understand why Nick was such an incredible songwriter. And then how exciting that actually he got that skill from his mum. You know, it's all of a sudden switches you on. And that's what we do. It's We contextualise the relevance of music. That's what the music industry does really bloody well. I have to stand up for us because, you know, we get browbeaten so much we get like the sometimes the way managers talk to us sometimes the way our clients talk to us you know it it gets quite personal and you know i'm sat there thinking well you know 20 years ago i could have gone and worked for a corporate law firm but i was passionate about music and i just got addicted to the the opportunity of pointing people to music they'd never heard of and like how exciting that was and how how to be part of the dialogue of, of making people value music, that was really significant to me. And so it sort of undermines my life choice, <laughs> like the way people like discredit music, like it's just this frivolous entertainment thing and like, you know, that it's not integral. I can tell you if you start to look at the work of organisations like Music and Memory, various Alzheimer's organizations and watch how music is bringing people back to life and how music gets people back on their feet, gets people dancing. I mean, I went to um, a care home a few years ago, a dementia home, and I was playing a 12-inch remix of Love to Love You Baby and a man that was in uh, the final stages of his life he had severe Alzheimer's got up off his feet and he started dancing the staff started dancing his family had never seen him move he hadn't even he'd never he'd just been sitting in a chair for years it was like the awakening and everyone was crying and dancing and laughing and clapping and like everyone was just no one, no one that day said, oh, Lyndon, can you put Donna Summer on? It would be the last thing anyone would have suggested. And I actually put it on by accident. I was like, oops, I probably didn't mean to put that on. But it was like, I will never forget that moment. I'll never forget the impact, the intergenerational impact that had, that you had people of colour, you had, like, 80-year-old white men, you had, like, women, you had, you know, I'm not sure of the gender status of everyone that was in that room that day but like you know you had people that didn't know each other strangers stand up and dance and that is what brands want to channel they want to channel those impulses that community and you know I truly believe that the independent community is in a really strong place because we know our music we care about our music and brands want to buy that they want to buy that
0: <laughs> <laughs> no i'm sat here nodding people that are listening i like absolutely agree with you right i don't want to take up more than an hour of your time so i'm going to ask my final it's my tea question which is how do you take yours milk first or water first
1: it depends on the context um i when i've got my little tea bag it's always water
0: first but
1: so if it's a loose tea then the milk goes into my cup first.
0: So there you go. I've got my, t- my context point out there. You're Everything in context. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Thank you so much for taking part. It was hugely interesting and I could probably talk to you all day about the value of independent music.
1: Thank you for letting me have the opportunity to share the value of independent music.
0: <laughs> I'm just going to... I just want to give a huge thanks to Lyndon for giving me an hour of her time for this conversation. I hope you've got a lot out of it. If anyone wants to get in touch with her and find out more about the project and how they can help um, or to read the paper, I've put a link to her LinkedIn in the show notes where you can connect with her and to the um, article that I originally read when I was like, oh my goodness, I need to speak to you about this. This is amazing. And um, I put that link in there as well. I realised for a lot of people, this is taking like a huge leap of faith that we need to be more thoughtful in in our language of search and, and how we interact with culture and words and the world around us. That is, it's huge. And it's a little bit more in depth Thought for content than probably what I've been covering so far in these episodes, but I really do hope you found it useful. And if you did, I would absolutely love for you to get in touch and let me know. So either send me an email, I'll pop my email address in the show notes, or um, yeah, just get in touch with me on LinkedIn. I would love to hear feedback on this episode because it's it's been a bit of a different one to the ones I normally put out there so yeah um as always I have a really great guide to help you create more of your content in less time you can download the workbook from that i called it a workbook slash mini course um, that's also in the show notes please do go ahead and download that and you can subscribe to this podcast on hopefully all the podcasting channels now and great, I will see you next week when I'll be talking some more about blogging.